Chapter 3, Parts 1 to 6 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Third Intentions and the Lady Mary Christian. 1. I know that before the end of my Harbury days, I was already dreaming of a career of some great and conspicuous usefulness in the world. That has always haunted my mind, and haunts it now. I may be cured, perhaps, of the large and showy anticipations of youth. I may have learnt to drop the great and conspicuous. But still, I find it necessary to believe that I matter, that I play a part no one else can play in a progress, in a universal scheme moving towards triumphant ends. Almost wholly, I think, I was dreaming of public service in those days. The Harbury tradition pointed steadfastly towards the state, and all my world was bare of allurements to any other type of ambition. Success in art or literature did not appeal to us, and a Harbury boy would as soon think of being a great tinker as a great philosopher. Science we called stinks. Our three science masters were ex officio ridiculous, and the practical laboratory a refuge for oddities. But a good half of our fathers at least were peers or members of Parliament, and our sense of politics was close and keen. History, and particularly history as it came up through the eighteenth century to our own times, supplied us with a gallery of intimate models. Our great-uncles and grandfathers and ancestors at large figured abundantly in the story, and furnished the pattern to which we cut our anticipations of life. It was a season of imperialism, the picturesque imperialism of the earlier Kipling phase, and we were all of us enthusiasts for the empire. It was the empire of the white man's burthen in those days. The sordid anticlimax of the tariff reform movement was still some years ahead of us. It was easier for us at Harbury to believe then than it has become since in our own racial and national and class supremacy. We were the Anglo-Saxons, the elect of the earth, leading the world in social organization, in science and economic method. In India and the East more particularly, we were the apostles of even-handed justice, relentless veracity, personal cleanliness, and modern efficiency. In a spirit of adventurous benevolence, we were spreading those blessings over a reluctant and occasionally recalcitrant world of people, for the most part, colored. Our success in this had aroused the bitter envy and rivalry of various continental nations, and particularly of France, Russia, and Germany. But France had been diverted to North Africa, Russia to Eastern Asia, and Germany was already the most considered antagonist in our path towards an empire over the world. This was the spacious, and by no means ignoble, project of the later nineties. Most of us Harbury boys, trained as I had been trained to be uncritical, saw the national outlook in those terms. We knew little or nothing, until the fierce wranglings of the free traders and tariff reformers a few years later brought it home to us, of the commercial, financial, and squalid side of our relations with the vast congeries 
of exploited new territories and subordinated and subjugated populations. We knew nothing of the social conditions of the mass of people in our own country. We were blankly ignorant of economics. We knew nothing of that process of expropriation and the exploitation of labor which is giving the world the servile state. The very phrase was twenty years ahead of us. We believed that an Englishman was a better thing in every way than any other sort of man, that English literature, science, and philosophy were a shining and unapproachable light to all other peoples, that our soldiers were better than all other soldiers, and our sailors than all other sailors. Such civilization and enterprise as existed in Germany, for instance, we regarded as a shadow, an envious shadow, following our own. It was still generally believed in those days that German trade was concerned entirely with the dishonest imitation of our unapproachable English goods. And as for the United States, well, the United States, though blessed with a strain of English blood, were nevertheless out of it marooned in a continent of their own, and, we had to admit it, corrupt. Given such ignorance, you know, it wasn't by any means ignoble to be patriotic, to dream of this propagandist empire of ours spreading its great peace and culture, its virtue, and its amazing and unprecedented honesty, its honesty, round the world. 2. When I look and try to recover those early intentions of mine, I am astonished at the way in which I took them ready-made from the world immediately about me. In some way I seem to have stopped looking, if ever I had begun looking, at the heights and depths above and below that immediate life. I seem to have regarded these profounder realities no more during this phase of concentration than a cow in a field regards the sky. My father's vestments, the Burnmore altar, the Harbury pulpit, and Mr. Siddons stood between me and the idea of God, so that it needed years and much bitter disillusionment before I discovered my need of it. And I was as wanting in subtlety as in depth. We did no logic nor philosophy at Harbury, and at Oxford it was not so much thought we came to deal with as a mistranslation and vulgarization of ancient and alien exercises in thinking. There is no such effective serum against philosophy as the scholarly decoction of a dead philosopher. The philosophical teaching of Oxford at the end of the last century was not so much teaching as a protective inoculation. The stuff was administered with a mysterious gilding of Greek and reverence. Old Hegel's monstrous web was the ultimate modernity, and Plato, that intellectual journalist-artist, that bright, restless experimentalist in ideas, was, as it were, the god of wisdom, only a little less omniscient, and on the whole more of a scholar and a gentleman than the god of fact. So I fell back upon the empire in my first attempts to unify my life. I would serve the empire. That should be my total significance. There was a Roman touch, I perceive, in this devotion. Just how or where I should serve the empire, I had not as yet determined. At times I thought of the civil service. In my more ambitious moments I turned my thoughts to politics. 
but it was doubtful whether my private expectations made the last a reasonable possibility. I would serve the Empire. 3. And all the while that the first attempts to consolidate, to gather one's life together into a purpose and a plan of campaign, are going on upon the field of the young man's life, there come and go and come again in the sky above him, the threatening clouds, the ethereal cirrus, the red dawns and glowing afternoons, of that passion of love, which is the source and renewal of being. There are times when that solicitude matters no more than a springtime sky to a runner who wins towards the post. There are times when its passionate urgency dominates every fact in his world. 4. One must have children and love them passionately before one realizes the deep indignity of accident in life. It is not that I mind so much when unexpected and disconcerting things happen to you or your sisters, but that I mind before they happen. My dreams and anticipations of your lives are all marred by my sense of the huge importance mere chance encounters and incalculable necessities will play in them. And in friendship, and still more here, in the central business of love, accident rules, it seems to me, almost altogether. What personalities you will encounter in life, and have for a chief interest in life, is nearly as much a matter of chance as the drift of a grain of pollen in the pine forest. And once the light hazard has blown, it has blown, never to drive again. In other schoolrooms and nurseries, in slum living-rooms perhaps, or workhouse wards, or palaces, round the other side of the earth, in Canada or Russia or China, other little creatures are trying their small limbs, clutching at things about them with infantile hands, who some day will come into your life with a power and magic monstrous and irrational and irresistible. They will break the limits of your concentrating self, call you out to the service of beauty and the service of the race, sound you to your highest and your lowest, give you your chance to be godlike or filthy, divine or utterly ignoble, react together with you upon the very core and essence of your being. These unknowns are the substance of your fate. You will, in extreme intimacy, love them, hate them, serve them, struggle with them, and in that interaction the vital force in you and the substance of your days will be spent. And who they may chance to be, and their peculiar quality and effect, is haphazard, utterly beyond designing. Law and custom conspire with the natural circumstances of man to exaggerate every consequence of this accumulating accident and make it definite and fatal. I find it quite impossible now to recall the steps and stages by which this power of sex invaded my life. It seems to me now that it began very much as a gale begins, in cat's paws upon the water and little rustlings among the leaves, and then stillness, and then a distant sowing again, and a pause, 
and then a wider and longer disturbance, and so more and more, with a gathering continuity, until at last the stars were hidden, the heavens were hidden. All the heights and depths of life were obscured by stormy impulses and passionate desires. I suppose that quite at the first there were simple curiosities. No doubt they were vivid at the time, but they have left scarcely a trace. There were vague first intimations of a peculiar excitement. I do remember, more distinctly, phases when there was a going out for myself towards these things, these interests, and then a reaction of shame and concealment. And these memories were mixed up with others not sexual at all, and particularly with the perception of beauty in things inanimate, with lights seen at twilight, and the tender mysteriousness of the dusk, and the confused disturbing sense of flowers in the evening, and the enigmatical serene animation of stars in the summer sky. I think, perhaps, that my boyhood was exceptionally free from vulgarizing influences in this direction. There were few novels in my father's house, and I neither saw nor read any plays until I was near manhood, so that I thought naturally about love, and not rather artificially round and about love, as so many imaginative young people are trained to do. I fell in love once or twice while I was still quite a boy. These earliest experiences rarely got beyond a sort of dumb awe, a vague, vast, ineffectual desire for self-immolation. For a time I remember I worshipped Lady Ladislaw with all my being. Then I talked to a girl in a train. I forget upon what journey. But I remember very vividly her quick color and a certain roguish smile. I spread my adoration at her feet, fresh and frank. I wanted to write to her. Indeed, I wanted to devote all my being to her. I begged hard, but there was someone called Auntie who had to be considered, an atropos for that thread of romance. Then there was a photograph in my father's study of the Delphic Sibyl from the Sistine Chapel that for a time held my heart, and, yes, there was a girl in a tobacconist's shop in the Harbury High Street. Drawn by an irresistible impulse, I used to go and buy cigarettes, and sometimes converse about the weather. But afterwards, in solitude, I would meditate tremendous conversations and encounters with her. The cigarettes increased the natural melancholy of my state, and led to a reproof from old Henson. Almost always, I suppose, there is that girl in the tobacconist's shop. I believe if I made an effort, I could disinter some dozens of such memories, more and more faded, until the marginal ones would be featureless, and all but altogether effaced. As I look back at it now, I am struck by an absurd image. It is as if a fish nibbled at this bait and then at that. Given but the slightest aid from accidental circumstances, and any of those slight attractions might have become a power to deflect all my life. The day of decision arrived, when the Lady Mary Christian came smiling out of the sunshine to me into the pavilion at Burnmore. With that, the phase of stirrings and intimations was over forever in my life.
All those other impressions went then to the dusty lumber-room, from which I now so slightingly disinter them. 5. We five had all been playmates together. There were Lord Maxton, who was killed at Partiburg while I was in Ladysmith. He was my senior by nearly a year. Philip, who is now Earl Ladislaw, and who was about eighteen months younger than I. Mary, my contemporary within eight days, and Guy, whom we regarded as a baby, and who was called, apparently on account of some early linguistic efforts, Rugglesmith. He did his best to avenge his juniority as time passed on by an enormous length of limb. I had more imagination than Maxton, and was a good deal better read, so that Mary and I dominated most of the games of Indians and warfare and exploration in which we passed our long days together. When the Christians were at Burnmore, and they usually spent three or four months in the year there, I had a kind of standing invitation to be with them. Sometimes there would also be two Christian cousins to swell our party, and sometimes there would be a raid of the Fawny children, with a detestable governess who was perpetually vociferating reproaches. But these latter were absent-minded, lax young persons, and we did not greatly love them. It is curious how little I remember of Mary's childhood. All that has happened between us since lies between that and my present self, like some luminous, impenetrable mist. I know we liked each other, that I was taller than she was, and thought her legs unreasonably thin, and that once, when I knelt by accident on a dead stick she had brought into an Indian camp we had made near the end of the west shrubbery, she flew at me in a sudden fury, smacked my face, scratched me, and had to be suppressed, and was suppressed with extreme difficulty by the united manhood of us three elder boys. Then it was I noted first the blazing blueness of her eyes. She was light and very plucky, so that none of us cared to climb against her, and she was as difficult to hold as an eel. But all these traits and characteristics vanished when she was transformed. For what seems now a long space of time, I had not seen her, or any of the family except Philip. It was certainly a year or more, probably two. Maxton was at a crammer's, and I think the others must have been in Canada with Lord Ladislaw. Then came some sort of estrangement between him and his wife, and she returned with Mary and Guy to Burnmore, and stayed there all through the summer. I was in a state of transition between the infinitely great and the infinitely little. I had just ceased to be that noble and potent being, that almost statesmanlike personage, a sixth-form boy at Harbury, and I was going to be an Oxford undergraduate. Philip and I came down together by the same train from Harbury. I shared the Burnmore dog-cart and luggage-cart, and he dropped me at the rectory. I was a long-limbed youngster of seventeen, as tall as I am now, and fair, so fair that I was still boyish-faced, while most of my contemporaries, and Philip, who favoured his father, were at least smudgy with moustaches. With the headmaster's valediction, and the grave elder-brotherliness of old Henson, 
and to the shrill cheers of a little crowd of juniors still echoing in my head, I very naturally came home in a mood of exalted gravity, and I can still remember pacing up and down the oblong lawn behind the rockery in the fig-tree wall with my father, talking of my outlook with all the tremendous savoir-faire that was natural to my age, and noting with a secret gratification that our shoulders were now on a level. No doubt we were discussing Oxford, and all that I was to do at Oxford. I don't remember a word of her speech, though I recall the exact tint of its color, and the distinctive feeling of our measured equal paces in the sunshine. I must have gone up to Burnmore House the following afternoon. I went up alone, and I was sent out through the little door at the end of the big gallery into the garden. In those days Lady Ladislaw had made an Indian pavilion under the tall trees at the east end of the house, and here I found her with her cousin Helena Christian, entertaining a mixture of people, a carriage full from Hampton End, the two elder Fawnies, and a man in brown who had, I think, ridden over from Chestoxter Castle. Lady Ladislaw welcomed me with ample graciousness, as though I was a personage. The children, she said, were still at tennis, and as she spoke I saw Guy, grown nearly beyond recognition, and then a shining being in white, very straight and graceful, with a big soft hat and overshadowed eyes that smiled, come out from the hurried endearments of the sunflakes under the shadows of the great chestnuts, into the glow of summer light before the pavilion. "'Steve arrived!' she cried, and waved a welcoming racket. I do not remember what I said to her, or what else she said, or what anyone said. But I believe I could paint every detail of her effect. I know that when she came out of the brightness into the shadow of the pavilion, it was like a regal condescension, and I know that she was wonderfully self-possessed and helpful with her mother's hospitalities, and that I marveled I had never before perceived the subtler sweetness in the cadence of her voice. I seem also to remember a severe internal struggle for my self-possession, and that I had to recall my exalted position in the sixth form, to save myself from becoming tongue-tied and abashed and awkward and utterly shamed. You see, she had her hair up, and very prettily dressed, and those aggressive lean legs of hers had vanished, and she was sheathed in muslin that showed her the most delicately slender and beautiful of young women. And she seemed so radiantly sure of herself. After our first greeting, I do not think I spoke to her or looked at her again throughout the meal. I took things that she handed me with an appearance of supreme indifference, was politely attentive to the elder Miss Fawney, and engaged with Lady Ladislaw and the horsey little man in brown, in a discussion of the possibility of mechanical vehicles upon the high road. That was in the early nineties. We were all of opinion that it was impossible to make a sufficiently light engine for the purpose. Afterwards, Mary confessed to me how she had been looking forward to our meeting, and how snubbed I had made her feel. Then, a little later than this meeting in the pavilion, 
though I am not clear now whether it was the same or some subsequent afternoon. We are walking in the sunken garden, and great clouds of purple clematis, and some less lavish heliotrope-colored creeper, foam up against the ruddy stone balustrading. Just in front of us a fountain gushes out of a grotto of artificial stalagmite, and bathes the pedestal of an absurd little statuette of the god of love. We are talking almost easily. She looks sideways at my face, already with the quiet controlled watchfulness of a woman interested in a man. She smiles, and she talks of flowers and sunshine, the Canadian winter, and with an abrupt transition of old times we've had together in the shrubbery and the wilderness of bracken out beyond. She seems tremendously grown up and womanly to me. I am talking my best, and glad, and in a manner scared at the thrill her newly discovered beauty gives me, and keeping up my dignity and coherence with an effort. My attention is constantly being distracted to note how prettily she moves, to wonder why it is I never noticed the sweet fall, the faint delightful whisper of a lisp in her voice before. We agree about the flowers, and the sunshine, and the Canadian winter, about everything. I think so often of those games we used to invent, she declares. So do I, I say, so do I. And then, with a sudden boldness, once I broke a stick of yours, a rotten stick you thought a sound one. Do you remember? Then we laugh together, and seem to approach across a painful, unnecessary distance that has separated us. It vanishes forever. I couldn't now, she says, smack your face like that, Stephen. That seems to me a brilliantly daring and delightful thing for her to say, and jolly of her to use my Christian name, too. I believe I scratched, she adds. You never scratched, I assert with warm conviction. Never. I did, she insists, and I deny. You couldn't. We're growing up, she cries. That's what has happened to us. We shall never fight again with our hands and feet, never, until death do us part. For better or worse, I say, with a sense of wit and enterprise beyond all human precedent. For richer or poorer, she cries, taking up my challenge with a lifting laugh in her voice. And then, to make it all nothing again, she exclaims at the white lilies, that rise against masses of sweet bay along the further wall. How plainly I can recall it all! How plainly and how brightly! As we came up the broad steps at the further end towards the tennis lawn, she turned suddenly upon me, and with a novel assurance of command, told me to stand still. There, she said, with a hand out, and seemed to survey me, with her chin up and her white neck at the level of my eyes. Yes, a whole step, she estimated, and more taller than I. You will look down on me, Stephen, now for all the rest of our days. I shall always stand, I answered, a step or so below you.
No, she said, come up to the level. A girl should be smaller than a man. You are a man, Stephen, almost. You must be near six feet. Here's Guy with a box of balls. She flitted about the tennis court before me, playing with Philip against Guy and myself. She punished some opening condescensions with a wicked vigor, and presently Guy and I were straining every nerve to save the set. She had a low, close serve, I remember, that seemed perfectly straightforward and simple, and was very difficult to return. 6. All that golden summer, on the threshold of my manhood, was filled by Mary. I loved her with the love of a boy and a man. Either I was with Mary, or I was hoping and planning to be with Mary, or I was full of some vivid new impression of her, or some enigmatical speech, some pregnant nothing, some glance or gesture engaged and perplexed my mind. In those days I slept the profound sweet sleep of youth, but whenever that deep flow broke towards the shallows, as I sank into it at night and came out of it at morning, I passed through dreams of Mary, to and from a world of waking thought of her. There must have been days of friendly intercourse, when it seemed we talked nothings, and wandered and meandered among subjects, but always we had our eyes on one another. And afterwards I would spend long hours in recalling and analyzing those nothings, questioning their nothingness, making out of things too submerged and impalpable for the rough drags of recollection, promises and indications. I would invent ingenious things to say, things pushing out suddenly from nothingness to extreme significance. I rehearsed a hundred declarations. It was easy for us to be very much together. We were very free that summer, and life was all leisure. Lady Ladislaw was busied with her own concerns. She sometimes went away for two or three days, leaving no one but an attenuated governess, with even the shadow of a claim to interfere with Mary. Moreover, she was used to seeing me with her children at Burnmore. We were still, in her eyes, no more than children. And also, perhaps she did not greatly mind if indeed we did a little fall in love together. To her that may have seemed a very natural and slight and transitory possibility. One afternoon of warm shadows, in the wood near the red lacquered Chinese bridge, we two were alone together, and we fell silent. I was trembling and full of a wild courage. I can feel now the exquisite surmise, the doubt of that moment. Our eyes met. She looked up at me with an unwanted touch of fear in her expression, and I laid my hands on her. She did not recoil. She stood mute, with her lips pressed together, looking at me steadfastly. I can feel that moment now as a tremendous hesitation, blank and yet full of light and life, like a clear sky in the moment before dawn. She made a little move towards me. Impulsively, 
with no word said, we kissed. End of chapter 3, parts 1 to 6